0: Tonight's thought There's nothing certain in life But death and taxes And oh yeah Neighbors Yeah Ben Franklin had it wrong Or at least he had it Two thirds right Or he was maybe one of the few people who have ever lived. Or perhaps even the only person who ever lived who was never graced with the presence of a neighbor. But yeah, this is uh, another Ben Franklin quote. I guess you can call it an aphorism. That he said, sometime in the 18th century, presumably along with a lot of other uh, things that he's uh, credited with quoting. He said, nothing is certain in life, but death and taxes. Now, I know, once again, me taking things literally, uh, he, he means to say those are the two things in life that you can pretty much count on. There, there's a ton of unknown variables to life, but you know that you're going to die and you know that you're going to pay taxes. Uh, that's going to happen. But just thinking this week, uh, I'd like to add one more onto that list. Uh, Again, I'm not trying to take it too literally, but neighbors, we are going to live next to people that we're not related to and we cannot get rid of. Neighbors influence our lives. Uh, a great a great deal of our lives the time that we're not at work the time that we're not asleep well maybe even sometimes when we are asleep we have to deal with neighbors they shape our lives uh, for the better or worse which one of these is uncertain but the one thing is certain is that we will have neighbors You know, even Henry David Thoreau, America's most famous hermit, had neighbors. Now, whether or not Thoreau was a hermit is up for debate. You know, he lived for two and a half years on Walden Pond, chopping wood and talking to butterflies and writing books. Just to get away from it all, but... You know, once every couple of weeks, he would walk into Concord, Massachusetts, like two miles away, and he would uh, lunch with uh, his mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and uh, Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. You know, he had these neighbors. I'm told he got along with them. Birmingham Alabama this is the Midnight Citizen show I am your host Mike Booty thanks for stopping by tonight on Saturday evening it's dark outside and uh, yeah it's it's good to be here I've got a constant stream of uh, various uh, world cams on the uh on the monitor over here just showing me what's going on right now on earth it's uh a little after 10 o'clock here central standard time and uh this is uh weird normally this time of year this uh this very weekend i would be you know, counting down the seconds until I have to go back to school and teach uh, high school students on Monday. Yeah, my old uh, my school started this week, but I wasn't there. I wasn't teaching. Um, I was uh, still in my summer vacation. Um. I'm starting uh, graduate school classes uh, up again next uh, Tuesday, so I've still got like a whole other week of summer. It feels like very weird to uh, be doing this right now, to just uh, be unemployed. Uh, Very, very few times in my adult life have I gone without a job, without a paycheck, uh, without health insurance. Well, I talked about that last week. I I was able to Uh, Procure health insurance, but I don't have a job. I'm not employed right now. I'm a a full-time student, essentially, getting a stipend um, through my university uh, once a month. Uh, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, here I am now. And uh, I knew that this week was going to be weird. Um, Waking up on Thursday morning and just knowing that this time last year, I was uh, I was facing the first day of school. I was facing like nine more months of teaching students English, uh, grammar and writing and reading and all that. And now like that part of my life is completely past me and, and, and over. And, you know, the world is still going on. The school is still going on. The bell rang without me. You know, the kids are kids that I taught last year. They, they have a new uh, English teacher. I was supposed to be their English teacher again this year, but I'm not there. And uh, it's just um, you know quite a uh, quite a bizarre feeling uh, to be here right now, and to just know that tomorrow will be Sunday and there will not be that like typical Sunday crunch of uh, making sure all my lessons are planned for the week and and getting grades uh, you know things graded and turned in and all that. It's just you know, it's uh, strange. I know that in a little over a week I'm going to be. Facing the Sunday crunch again. Um, but I not as a teacher, as a student. Um, you know, not grading papers, but writing papers to grade. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm really excited about this. I mean, I, I just uh, talked about this again on the show last week. That uh, I just love that feeling of newness, of, uh, of anticipating... Um, a new, a new adventure, and you know, working with new people, meeting new people that you're going to be sharing your days with, um, and uh, learning things, right? I just, I love the idea of learning things. I know right now, college and universities, they're coming under like a lot of scrutiny because of student debt, mounting student debt. One of the big things in the news this week is Joe Biden is he going to, you know, forgive? billions of dollars of student debt because college is uh you know students are responding right now by not going to college because it's just too dang expensive so they got to do something about it and so a lot of people are saying like i mean is college really important is being a student really important i mean i've always enjoyed it i've always enjoyed being a student as long as i don't have to you know take out any money that i have to pay back to do it (laughs) But uh, sadly for many, many people that's not the case, and uh, they are being deprived of this like opportunity um, to go and just um, spend their days learning things that they may or may not need in life. But uh, no learning, I don't think ever ever hurt anybody, right? And uh, I'm excited to just go back into this and do it again here in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> But uh, I, I was thinking this week that it's it's weird uh, that I am right now. I'm changing lifestyles, and uh, that that goes uh, with my colleagues as well. These these people I've been working with every single day, and uh, seeing more than my my wife, and and on some weeks are suddenly just not in my life anymore. Like they're there on social media, you know, on Thursday I was on Facebook seeing like social media posts from like all my old colleagues about going back to school and working with the kids. And, and, but, but by and large, I'm not going to see them day to day anymore. Um, you know, these people that I've gone out with and broken bread with. And, uh, I remember one day when we, we had professional development and, uh, you know the kids were not at the school so we went into the kitchen and just like um did hot sauce challenges and just made like the most the like the craziest fieriest hot sauces we possibly could uh you know, fun moments with these people that i'm not, i'm most likely will not ever work with um again i hope i see a lot of them again but uh it's just strange that just like that, they're out of my life. You know, just weird that I'm changing colleagues. That's easier to do than changing neighbors, though, isn't it? Yeah, this is getting back to my larger point. You know, the the funny thing about neighbors, uh, these people that you just live next to and, and really have no choice in the matter of who your neighbors are. I guess it just depends on what kind of a neighborhood you're moving into, what the property values are. But, I mean, that, that doesn't even really... Matter. I mean, if somebody is living next to you in a house or an apartment that costs about the same amount of money as you make, that doesn't mean that they're going to be the same person as you, or that doesn't mean they're going to be any nicer, any more evil. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about it is with like changing colleagues at work, you can do that. You have the choice. With neighbors, you don't have the choice. The neighbors, uh, they leave you. You do not you don't leave them i mean especially if you like like your house or you like your apartment you want to stay there you know yeah yeah with neighbors um your lifestyle can change at any moment um at just a moment's notice you can wake up one morning and look out your window and take in a nice uh breath of morning air and then be choked by the fumes of uh, a rider moving truck a u-haul pulling up outside of your building <laughs> suddenly you've got a new neighbor and um how does this how will how will things go now how will this neighbor change your life I, i've become a little numb to it throughout my life maybe if you live in a house. Um, you're you're kind of used to your neighbors and you've had some of them for many many years like my my parents actually this is uh august of 2022 30 years ago this month uh they bought and uh, moved into the house uh that they still have now and they still have the same neighbor um as they did when they when they first moved in there 30 years ago um but yeah, like living in an apartment, though, it's 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 obviously much different because you're you know, people are paying rent. They, they, they're not locked into a mortgage or anything like that that uh, may keep them there for many years. Um, and so I live in an apartment. So I, I have gotten I have had so many neighbors over the last 12, 13 years that I've lived in this building that I've gone sort of numb to even noticing my neighbors. And I don't like that. Because I have had really great neighbors. And a great neighbor can. Have such a positive Im- impact on your life. Um, you know you see them in the street. You feel good that they're there. You know they they look out for you. You know that if uh, Amazon delivers a box to the building. They're going to pick it up and bring it inside. So it doesn't get stolen. Um, na- neighbors can have a genuinely good impact on your life I mean, case in point um the first day of my summer right um this this year i i ended up coming down with covid um i i got uh, i got the coronavirus like the i i survived two and a half years of working with students in a public high school or par- a private high school excuse me and everybody my colleagues the students they were all getting covid left and right i didn't get it somehow and then the the last day, the first day of summer comes of my last year of teaching, and uh, and I get COVID, so there I am laid up with this uh, terrible uh, virus, and I get a knock on my door, and uh, I open it up and I I keep my distance obviously, and I let it's it's my neighbor, my my uh, not my um, somebody who lives in my apartment building, but uh, my Uh, apartment building butts up against an alley and across the alley is uh, a a residential street with a bunch of houses. And uh, there's this nice older couple who lives in a house actually right outside the midnight citizen studio here. Um, I can see their house from here. And um, I let her know that I have COVID. So please don't open the door, but I talked to her through the glass and she says that there is this uh, cat um, that we've been you know taking care of together um, her and her husband and, and me and my wife um, for several years now we call them waffles and she tells us that sadly waffles um, uh, passed away but was probably run over by a car in the early morning hours which I knew was going to happen um, at some point I even said to my wife Uh, Last week or the the week before that, that uh, Waffles was getting so old and deaf and blind and a car could come and, you know, the cat would just stand there and play chicken with the car and would not move. Um, And I and I I would have to go out and sort of physically remove Waffles uh, from the alley so that cars would not run over. And so I knew it was only a matter of time. And surely enough, it did happen. And I feel ter- i felt terrible. And I said to her, "I feel terrible that I can't come out and and help you deal with this and and help you, you know, pick up waffles." And and she said, "That's okay. That's okay." And like, um, before I knew it, her husband was digging a hole, and now I'm looking at Waffles' grave, um, right out there. I mean, that's that's a good neighbor. And uh, it, it it's it was a sad situation, but it was so good that we had, you know, people there to take care of of us and. Um, You know, one of the reasons that my wife and I are still in this apartment building today is uh, very much so because of those neighbors who actually, uh, their son married a friend of mine from middle school that uh, ended up doing theater with my wife and was a mutual friend. So that was good, right? Now, that being said, we've also you know, obviously had a lot of bad neighbors, uh, too, in the uh, 12, 13 years or so that we've been in this building. Um, and every single time I, we have a bad neighbor and, uh, you know, we'll go out and this usually happens about once every month or so we'll go out the back door of our apartment and walk the dogs and we'll see the dumpster. And, uh, there's every once in a while, you know, like I said, about once a month or so, uh, there will be, uh, furniture and just trash thrown all over the dumpster you know somebody moving out of our building that doesn't want to take the uh, time or the effort to move all their stuff someplace else and so they just discard it in our dumpster and I always it's a terrible sight because it makes you feel like you're living in a landfill but I always get a little bit excited because maybe the bad neighbor that I wish would be out of the building is now leaving so and uh and yeah that that happens every once in a while and it feel you know it's a negative feeling to have to wish that you could just get rid of somebody but you know there it is they're gone and yeah like i mean outside in that very alley i was just talking about where waffles the cat lived for many years and we took care of him before he was sadly run over by a car and where the dumpster is where people throw all their stuff when they move out I would like to go at night for many, many years going all the way back to 2011 and sit in that alley and at night and have like a drink and smoke a cigar and read a book or watch a movie or something like that. And I would always really enjoy that. It was a nice experience just to decompress at the end of the day from whatever my job was. And you know, this is, a tradition that's going, been going back all the way to like the days of me running my newspaper route. I would, you know, get home from my newspaper route in the morning and go out there and have coffee. And so this is a a tradition for me. And for many years, I had a neighbor that was uh, right next to me who we shared, um, an exit to the building. Um, they would have their back door, uh, right there. And, uh, my neighbor would, uh, always come out and talk to me or you know see me just in passing his name was Bob and I had worked with Bob many many years earlier um at an old company and uh I didn't remember him that much I always saw him in passing I worked in the warehouse and he worked in the uh in the office and so Bob and I struck up a friendship i mean we we hadn't seen each other for many years and we it took some time for us to get talking to realize that we worked in the same building and i said oh yeah you're that guy right and we talked for years and um eventually of course the day came when uh bob had to move out Now i still keep in touch with him but it was a sad day when bob moved out because he was a great neighbor and, uh, you know, Bob would come out, he didn't smoke cigars, but he would smoke cigarettes and he would smoke his cigarettes and I would have my cigar, my pipe or something like that. And we just sit there, you know, sometimes for quite a long time and, uh, just these, this, this great moment. And so he moves out, you know, a couple days later, um, you know, somebody else moves in somebody much, much younger than Bob, um, this girl who's all very, very nice and very polite, but she's kind of like all the all the other, you know. We one of the things about living in an apartment as an older person, um, you know. And I'm not that old. I mean, whatever. I'm I said I'm going to be forty next month, right? But you know, generally, people my age um, have had houses for quite some time. That's kind of the typical track of people living in suburban areas growing up in suburban areas. Like I did, you know, they, they get out of college and they usually get a job and they get a house and, and all that. Now I got a job, but I never got a house because I just, I don't know. I just always liked the idea that if I need to leave someplace, I can do that. And I don't have like this house to tie me down to it. And I've always had some house phobia and, and my wife is kind of the same way. And, uh, for for many many years, we we've backed off of the idea of buying a house. But anyway, but one of the things about living in an apartment building as a as as an older person is you generally get a lot of young people moving in, and 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 like people who are going through having their first apartment, for instance, uh, college students, people who are, you know, who have just gotten out of college, who have gotten a job here in the city and are moving in while they look for a house or something like that so you usually get these very young people and the thing about young people who have never had an apartment before and they've always lived with their parents or they lived in a a dorm with other people their age is they tend to sometimes be very standoffish you know they'll be polite they'll walk by you and they'll be nice to you but they will be very standoffish not not really wanting to like um say anything to you and and this this Happens with a lot of young people who live because, you know, in the middle of the day if I want to go outside on the steps and read it's too bright in the alley so I'll have to go out in the front you know, I don't have a porch, right? So I have to go out in the front in the courtyard and sit down there under the shade and neighbors will come by me all the time and I'll say hello to them and, and try to and be nice and, but a lot of times they won't even say hey back it's just, it's, you know, it's nothing Bad. I'm not sounding like a crotchety old person or anything, but my point being is that this girl who moves into the apartment that Bob used to inhabit, you know, Bob, like a a man who was actually much older than I am, and would always talk to me and had was was open about everything and you know really cordial. You know, he was replaced by this very young girl uh, who was nice but would never talk, would never, you know, just uh, acknowledge me or anything like that. You know, if anything, if I would say hey to her and she'd just be like, hey, (laughs) right. And so that was, that was uh, a little bit heartbreaking, but it was to be expected. And I continue with my routine for several weeks of just going out At night and uh, you know having like coffee or having like a a little uh, sip of bourbon maybe having a cigar or something like that and I would sit out there and uh, sometimes I would hear this girl in the apartment and uh, she would be like like one one time I heard her like screeching like ah (laughs) and um, come to find out through all of her rants and everything she would be ranting to herself that there was like a cockroach um, walking around her apartment and uh, I mean the, the screams got so loud that I kind of had no choice and I went and I tried not to scare her but I went and knocked on her door and I just said hey it's my, <laughs> I just heard this voice from inside hello and I said hey it's Mike uh, your neighbor um, I just heard you screaming are you okay and she's like yeah and I'm like "You know, I can come in and kill that if you need me to She's like, no, (laughs) it was just this thing where it's like, um, you know, just trying to be neighborly, but I guess she obviously is afraid of like a man knocking on her door late at night, offering to come in and and help her with something. Uh, so (laughs) yeah, I mean, but that's all to say though, that, um, a few weeks after she moves in, I go out one night and I'm about to have a cigar and I look up and there's a note on her door that she's written. She probably doesn't know that she's writing it to me, but it's nevertheless there. And the note says, you know, please stop smoking in this alley. The smoke gets into my apartment and I can smell it all the time. So, um, you know, that was one of those things where it's like, okay. I mean, I guess now all of a sudden my lifestyle is completely changing. Um, because I can't, um, you know, sit out here anymore. I'm going to have to find something else. You know, I could go to the front of the building, I guess, but there's all these neighbors out there who will come by me and just kind of make it generally uncomfortable because they won't say anything to me. And I tend to be a little bit paranoid when people don't talk to me and I'm right there in front of them. Right. So I, I end up going out in the back of the apartment building and just setting up a a little place there. Ends up actually being kind of nice, you know. So, so yeah, like, um, and this is all is to say that, uh, last week I go outside to walk my dogs and, um, all that, and I look at the dumpster and there's more furniture there, and a big box spring mattress and you know, all that stuff. And I see this girl who wrote the note to me. Uh, first off the note is no longer there and I see her getting in a u-haul and just like driving out of there like she had just robbed a bank or something so <laughs> so yeah she uh she got out of there now I can uh, have my alley back right <laughs> the Her apartment is completely closed, or or, uh, empty, I should say. I may, I may rent it, and just like have like an extra, an extra apartment. Walk over there. I may turn it into a smoking lounge. That might be nice. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I I grew up in a house um, in the suburbs and um, I always wanted neighbors growing up. I was always looking forward to getting my first apartment and having like a zany neighbor like I would see on all the sitcoms, you know, the zany neighbor trope. Like uh, Eddie Haskell. I don't think Eddie Haskell was a neighbor, actually. I think he was just Wally's friend and Leave it to Beaver. But yeah, yeah Rhoda Morgenstern, for instance. You know, the 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 Jewish best friend who's always coming over to your apartment. Uh Cosmo Kramer on Seinfeld, right? Yeah, there are all these like zany neighbors on television. Steve Urkel on Family Matters. Even wise ones like Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World, always part of the storyline. And I always, I always look forward to, I guess, naively having a neighbor because I thought it was going to be great. You know, you would just have like this best friend who like lived right next to you and was always there to like uh, dispense advice or get into crazy situations with you, and just make your life interesting. But uh as of yet I've never found that to be the case. Yeah, the reality of having neighbors is very different from the sitcom dimension. As I mentioned, I've had a lot of really good neighbors over the years. You know, like uh, Bob was a great neighbor. Uh, we had uh, Joan, who was about the same age as Bob, but uh, Joan was uh, a recovering alcoholic. I'm not try- I'm not like disparaging her. It's just that if she were a guest on the show, she would tell you that. You know, she she that was part of her regular thing to you is that every time you saw her, she would give you her recovery story. But Joan was, uh, Joan was a character who would just like, you know, you would know if she was anywhere within 15 feet of your apartment building. Um, her voice carried, you know, one time I joked to my wife that they should just like take down those giant tornado sirens and just replace them with Joan. Um, (laughs) that would have worked. Joan used to keep us up late at night, my wife and I, by making, uh sex videos for the internet and in her bedroom upstairs. So that was always nice. And it was a sad day when she moved out, <laughs> I would go back to the dumpster and I would see like, uh, a, a, an empty box for a stripper pole in there. And of course we had, uh, we had Davis who lived uh, with us for quite a long time upstairs. I had to help Davis move out. Um, Davis uh, paid me to help her move out by giving me this gigantic piece of artwork. If you're watching on uh, Midnight Citizen TV right now, got this gigantic uh, piece of artwork that she gave me for helping her move out. There's a price tag on it for like $600, and she's like, maybe you can sell it. <laughs> oh. I uh, posted that thing on the internet to try and get it for the amount that was on the price, and I just got ridiculed. It's just a bunch of, um, I don't know, it just looks like oil thrown all over like a piece of yellow construction paper or something, but, <laughs> but I have original artwork now, so that's good, I guess. And, uh, yeah, there was Debbie the Schizophrenic, um, and, uh, Debbie the Schizophrenic, actually, actually, we've had, uh, several Schizophrenics, uh, live in our building over the years, um, Yeah, there was this one schizophrenic who was living in an apartment across the way from us, across the courtyard, who would uh, go out in the middle of the night. This is way back in 2011 when I was doing my paper route and I was gone all night long. And, um, you know, my wife, Jessica, used to call me in the middle of the night and just say, like, the guy is pitching a fit. And I I had to call the cops on him, um, unfortunately. And he eventually did get. Taken away Um, I remember that day Because the landlord came over And met the cops And they brought him out of the apartment In handcuffs It was very sad And then we uh, And then You know another woman moved in Who basically was the same exact person Just a woman uh, To the same apartment A couple years later And uh, That She did not go as easy Um, You know She was really good friends with Davis For a while you know, she and Davis were uh, kind of in a love triangle with one of the guys who lived upstairs. And that's a whole other story. But things went south between them, of course, as they often do between neighbors. And um, and Debbie ended up threatening Davis's life. And then Jessica and I, my wife and I, who we always try to stay out of all this drama. You know, it's just not really... Something we want to get involved in, um, but we ended up becoming like um, like Reykjavik or, or, or Camp David. <laughs> we were like uh, you know Jimmy Carter brokering peace between uh, who was it, Menachem Begin and uh, Arafat, right? Yeah, they would both come over to our apartment at separate times, and and we would try to like make peace between them. And then, eventually, uh, Davis moved out, giving me this big, ugly piece of art behind me, and, uh, and Debbie stopped paying her rent and uh, ended up getting evicted eventually. It took almost a year for her to get evicted uh, because of the tenant rights here in Alabama. You know, she had to go to court with the landlord, and the landlord couldn't evict her after she had, like, a certain amount of time to, like, prove that she was going to pay rent or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was, it was wild and yeah i had to to call the cops a couple of times on neighbors i hate calling the cops and i'm not one of these like you know nosy neighbors or anything like that literally a nosy neighbor (laughs) i'm not like that but uh, you know one time i was sitting outside you know just at night um, having a drink and in the apartment up upstairs from us actually the one that i used to live in with my wife and we've we're first dating before we moved downstairs into the one that we're in now into that unit. I heard, uh, this guy beating up his girlfriend upstairs in our old apartment and just like slamming her against the wall. It was just horrible. It sounds like I live in a really terrible place. I don't, it, it's, it's mostly fine most of the time, but if you live in an apartment anywhere, you're going to get, you know, crazy people living around you. And so I had to call the cops And uh, they arrested, they came and arrested him. They took him away that night. Um, It it just, you know, awful. And that made me very sad because again, that was the apartment where I fell in love with my wife. A lot of love was had in that apartment. Right. And, um, you know, that's the thing. It's like, once you move out of a place, um, you know, you hope that like you give it some kind of a metaphysical presence that, lingers over it and 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 um enchants it or something like that i don't know and uh and that did not happen i mean it turned into like a dark ugly place with a very terrible person inside of it you know so And then, of course, there was Jeffrey. Jeffrey was a, a single, single man living in the building on the third floor across the courtyard. And I never talked to Jeffrey at all. Um, but he was—I think he was older than all the other neighbors I've mentioned. Older than Bob. Older than Joan. Old man, very solitary, construction worker. He would work at nights. And um, come home in 2011, 2012, right when I was getting off my paper route. And he would uh, bring in his lunch pail and always very nice to me. We never had extended conversations, but always said very, very nice. Nice to see you. Good morning. Right. And then one day Jeffrey just stopped coming in. Uh, from work his car was still there but he stopped coming in from work and um, I think somebody at work probably called the police to do a wellness check and they went into his apartment he had died uh, up there for three days and uh, sadly I was going out into the alley one night to walk the dogs and have a cigar and I found all of Jeffrey's stuff had just been thrown into the dumpster. Right. Not because he didn't want to take it with him because he but because he could not take it with him. Yeah. So, I just, yeah, proof that Ben Franklin was definitely right about death, but he needed to add neighbors to that list, so. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to play some music here and take a break. Sorry for bringing that down, my gosh, but. A lot more stuff to cover. Hopefully we'll uh, get back on a good note of positivity here on the Midnight Citizen Show. Thank you again for stopping by tonight. I'll be by after this. I've got
1: to go Willie said, Papa, don't put me down They're doing the hand drive all over the town time. i
0: Okay. We're back here at the Midnight Citizen Show. Mike Booty with you. Had a couple of nice songs there from uh, the free music archive.org. We had uh, Daddy Long Legs. The song was called Long John's Jump. And then followed by Hand Jive by the Jurgen Five. Um, yeah, I felt I needed to do some kind of a salute to uh, Olivia Newton John who uh, died last week. Uh, Very sadly, I think um, basically probably three generations of uh, American men grew up with Olivia Newton-John as their first crush. I know I did. Um, Yeah, the the hand jive, that's a big uh, song in that movie Grease, and that was a nice adaptation by the Jerkin Five want to um, let you know that you can uh, listen to my show elsewhere, wherever you're listening to it right now. It may be Spotify, maybe Stitcher, maybe Apple Podcasts. But you can also find me at slash the Midnight Citizen. You can find this show there. as well as an archive, back issues of shows, every show I've done since 2011. You can find them there. Uh, What else? Uh, You can also find me over at the Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G dot com. Um, Me and a lot of other great hosts over there. Watch the show live over at YouTube dot com slash Mike Booty. Don't forget that you can do that, too. You know, you can see me doing the show. You can see me showing you ugly artwork that I own on the wall that was given to me by neighbors. You can see uh, the video street video store. All that cool stuff. It's just the best thing to put on, if I do say so myself, in the background to have on while you're doing the dishes, going to sleep, or eh, whatever you want to do. That wasn't supposed to be dirty. Get your mind out of the gutter. Okay, whatever. I want to look at this really quickly. This is interesting. The uh, Pelham... Alabama Board of Education approves more police presence on school campus. Um, my mom told me about this this week. This is a, she's a former, um, she's a former uh, teacher at Pelham High School, and I'm a former student at Pelham High School, as are both my sisters. Pelham High School is uh, just the equivalent of, like, the country high school here in Alabama. Um, cow pasture in the back. Uh, a lot of development has come up around it ever since I was a freshman there 25 years ago. Um, but you know, back in the day, I used to be terrified of that place, just, like, scared to hell of it. I mean, for one, it looked like a giant prison. Everybody said so. It was just a you know this gigantic prison on a hill. You could be anywhere at all in Pelham, Alabama. You know, going down Highway Thirty One there, whatever, going toward Helena, and, and it would just look like you know a prison overlooking the entire community. <laughs> and uh, just as a as a high school freshman, it was terrifying to go there. Just going there with all these like redneck kids who would come in and like, you know, they could drive and they would come in with these gigantic trucks, these pickup trucks caked full of mud from whatever they did on the weekends. They had facial hair. <laughs> just everybody was so much bigger than me. It was so scary as a high school freshman. Right. And uh, I actually went there a while back, just kind of went to the parking lot because I was delivering food out to uh, Pelham. Uh, for one of these food delivery apps and I ended up, uh, just by Pelham high school. I was like, let me go check this out. And it still is just like, as this like an unnerving feeling, uh, just, I don't know if you, if you go to, um, your old high school ever, but it just, it it has this unbelievably uncomfortable feeling. It, It really does make you feel like you're just so small, like you're 15 years old again. Um, right. But yeah, I was looking at this article here in the Shelby County Reporter that my mom was telling me about uh, that school safety was the subject that took precedent at the Pelham Board of Education Um, regularly scheduled meeting on Tuesday, July 26th. The number one item on the agenda for the meeting was a recommendation to work with the city of Pelham to create police precincts at each Pelham City School allowing the Pelham Police Department to come to schools throughout the day for Wi-Fi access and a place to do necessary paperwork, thus increasing police presence on campus. Um, so they're putting students, you know, they're having, they're basically turning Pelham High School, a place that looks like a prison, into something of, of one, I mean, I don't know what else you would call it. I mean, I know it's technically not a prison; the kids aren't prisoners, but they can't leave. They're walking along all day, all day, and like a following a rigid schedule of going to different places in the building, and they're being monitored at all times by police officers. I don't know what you would call that. I mean, that sounds like a prison to me, right? But I, I don't know if this is a good idea um, of putting cops in, in, in high schools to the to the extent that, you know, they're going to be based out of that high school. I, I don't know. This sounds like a sign of the times to me. Of just having cops, you know, just co- a constant presence in the lives of, uh, of young people. Um, I don't know if that's such a good thing. You know, my my mom kind of had a take on it as somebody who had taught for about 38 years that it might be good for kids to just have this uh, positive um, relationship with police officers and that may transfer into their adulthood. And I I guess I understand that, but at the same time, there have been a lot of incidents, um, some of them making the news and a lot of others you can watch on YouTube of just like police officers, these school resource officers, you know, who were assigned by the police department to go and just provide security to the school all day, you know, they will often use excessive force on students for doing very mundane things like being late to class or mouthing off or something like that. And of course, you know, we look at the school shooting that happened in Texas, the school shooting that happened in Florida. You know, police were on campus and they, they, they ran away or they took their sweet time to intervene with the situation right it's, it's just the whole the whole thing is like an attempt to just provide a little bit of uh, security for the students but um, I, you know I don't know at the same time uh, they're just going to be coming to school following a rigid schedule all day basically training for life as a as a, as a criminal um, that's that to me kind of what that sounds like I don't know if it's such a good idea um yeah but Pelham High School is where I attended uh, school for the ninth and tenth grade after after that they built a new high school and I had to go there but I was at Pelham when uh, Columbine happened um, Columbine High School in uh, April of 1999 everybody was really excited for the new Star Wars film and uh, yeah, these two kids walked into a high school in Columbine, Colorado and just like uh, killed their classmates and teachers. And uh, it, it really did shake us up. It just got us thinking that like it could happen anywhere. And for about three weeks or so after that, just police were, you know, in, in the building all the time. Uh, just doing locker checks and random just checks just to make sure that, you know, the kids were on the up and up. And now it's so normal Um you know, in my, in my school, I did not, you know, the, where I taught for the last five years, we never had uh, school security officers or, or police officers come in. But, you know, in the professional development that I was not a part of this week, because I'm no longer teaching there, um, you know, I they, they had active shooter drills. I mean, it's something that we are actively now, as educators, expected to understand how to do, is to what to do with students in the event of an active shooter situation. It's just a a part of life now. And in public high schools and public middle school, any, any kind of school, there's usually a school resource officer, you know, a man who comes in with a gun and a shaved head in uniform standing around all day long. It's kind of the last line of defense between like a crazy person and and children. And so it's, um, it's just, it's a part of life now in America. But I do remember, though, that when uh, I mean, I'm laughing, but I mean Columbine happened, everybody was so on edge that two days or so after it happened, I, I think it happened within the week of Columbine. I'm sitting in English class one day, first period. I'm a sophomore in high school. And we suddenly get administrators coming through the hallways and coming into the rooms very quietly. And just motioning for us to come with them. We were doing an active shooter drill. Only it was not a drill. They legitimately thought that somebody was with bad intentions was going through the school. Um, There were no shots fired, no shots reported or anything like that. And it took us a very long time to figure out what happened. But the entire school was evacuated into the parking lot. We were there and the police department was called. There were something like three or four police cruisers who came up to Pelham High School and they went through the school and kind of found out what happened. We found out what happened much later. (laughs) It's that this uh, terrible, uh, awful um, smell was going on uh, through the ventilation. It was passing through the ventilation of the school and was making some kids sick. And they thought... Because these kids at Columbine had used, like, pot pipe bombs. You know, they thought that somebody had set off a bomb somewhere in the school. And uh, it was passing through the ventilation or something like that or whatever. It turned out that, like, this kid who was actually in one of my classes had brought pepper spray to school that day to show his friends. And uh, apparently, I I guess he had it confused with, like, a can of body spray or something like that. And he just, like, psst just a small little squirt <laughs> and uh yeah it ended up uh, just uh, you know having making us having to evacuate the entire school because that stuff once it gets in the air you know it's just it's it's awful and so we all thought that we were going to be on the news on the national news another columbine or something like that pelham high school in birmingham alabama but it was not to be i mean that's a good thing right yeah of course Yeah, like I think Betha, it was like um, God, 23 years ago when I was there in the parking lot, the very same parking lot the other day and just looking at the place. It had changed a lot. You know, they built new wings and painted a different color and. But yeah, it's 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 so strange that in this world, you know, everything changes around you. Within your lifetime, it just it gets to this point where, um, you know, you're just—I don't know—you're like a ghost haunting your old playgrounds, you know, just walking around. Just a sack of meat walking around among places where you used to go that are no longer there, but have been replaced by things that are like uglier than ever before. And I'll do this a lot, you know, because I drive a lot. I I drive around a lot uh, during the day and I've I've always lived in Birmingham and I'm very familiar with it because I've been here virtually my entire life. You know, I'll drive around the city and every place I go just reminds me of what used to be there. And almost always it, it, it was something that was so much more fun than what is there now. You know, like in this world, we used to go around like we used to go places. And we used to do things and we used to just have fun things to do. And just tell you that I don't really see that happening anywhere. I mean, I've talked about it many times on the show, but just going to the mall, I mean, used to be such a fun experience there were things to do there there were fun things to do and now it's just it's you can't even get a cup of coffee there anymore <laughs> um you know it's just a sad place i, I don't know if like uh, the kids have the same feeling i do i almost feel like this is a universal feeling this is not nostalgia this is like a universal feeling that the world is just um it, you know everything that used to make it fun is now sucked out of it I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm honestly not trying to be cynical or anything. I'm really trying to like give a practical realistic point of view here. That you know, we used to like go places and like, you know, buy stuff from these places that were open. And now those places have been mown down a very long time ago and now like the landscape is just dotted with giant storage buildings that keep the place that we used to buy, that the, the keep the things that we used to buy. Um, I went. I had to go to a storage unit last week with my mom to help her move a bunch of stuff, and uh, you know, I was just walking down these long aisles, these corridors of uh, just uh, storage units, and. Just thinking in every single one of these little storage units is just like, you know, somebody's life. And I wonder how many people bought something from this very spot where they are now keeping it. <laughs> you know. I mean, the same thing is, I again I've said it on the show before, you know, we used to buy products and now that we 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 kind of are the product, aren't we? You know. Like all these free services we sign up for on the internet, they keep our data, you know, we give them information about us. We're the product, you know, plasma donation centers that we go there now. I mean, there, there used to be like a really awesome movie theater that I used to go to all the time. And now it's turned into a plasma donation center. So you go there and you, you know, they pay you. Death taxes neighbors and change. That's it, right there, right? Well, one other thing that's absolutely certain on the uh, Midnight Citizen show is that uh, we're gonna go to down to the uh, Video Street Video Store and uh, watch some cool uh, watch some cool videos, right? Yeah, we're definitely doing that. Let's go ahead and do that right now. I'll be back in a bit. This is the Midnight Citizen Show.
1: Here's me. People who don't use their local library. Actually, it's a great place for everything. From watching videos and listening to music to using a computer, even literacy training and family reading groups. And of course, it's still the place to find all the books you could ever want. So check out your local library. Who knows? We might just run into each other. And now let's go on location. For the last couple of hours, the rest of Hollywood has been getting in the milk and letting out the cat. But for the crew of production number 821, the day is well along. While the city slept, The caravan of trucks was loaded with everything from lights to lunches, from catwalks to cameras, from pins to people. Everything. Tons of it. A city on wheels guarded by its own police, all just to bring life to a bundle of typewritten pages we call the script. Grip trucks, light trucks, prop trucks, wardrobe trucks, a truck for cameras, three dressing-room trailers, a high-lift truck, a boom truck, buses for the crew, busloads of extras. Generator trucks capable of lighting over 400 homes like yours and mine. Yes, when Warner Crews go on location, they go like the U.S. Army, prepared to stay. 9.30 a.m. Here we are on a mountaintop more than 1,000 feet above the city of Los Angeles. The Griffith Park Planetarium. This is our location. And this is its heart. Power. A diesel-operated dynamo that produces 2,000 amperes of direct current and pushes them through 320 feet of heavy-duty cable... into the connector boxes... and on into this battery of man-made suns. 9.45. The high-lift truck comes down onto the location proper, the planetarium parking area. And here's the camera in position for the first shot. The assistant director's voice is heard. All right, fellas, let's go. The first shot of the day is a close-up of Sal Moneo... who plays the part of a boy named Plato. In this scene, he is threatened by a gang of kids. And here are the kids. It's a quick shot, not a very complicated one, but it's now 10.30. There's a schedule to keep. All right, quiet. Quiet for rehearsal. There's the producer of Rebel Without a Cause settling a point with a script girl. A producer, you know, is a busy fellow. He's a combination of father, mother, and midwife. The picture is his baby. Oh, Dave. Hello, Gig. How are you, Dave? Good. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Weisbard. Mr. Weisbard has been working on Rebel Without a Cause for many months preparing. Is that right? That's right, Gig. As a matter of fact, about a year before we ever turned a camera. By we, I mean Stuart Stern and Irving Shulman, our two writers, and uh Nick Ray, our director. That's Mr. Ray seated to the left of the camera. The big fellow with the curly hair. I think I better explain right here what this picture is about. Rebel without a cause concerns itself with young people, boys and girls who don't understand the world, and about a world that doesn't understand them. Okay, Dave? Close enough. Now, what's the action here? Quiet. Well, in the sequence we're going to shoot today, Jimmy Dean and his friend Plato, played by Sal Moneo, are cornered by a high school gang up here in the planetarium parking lot I see, and Jimmy gets pushed around. This seems a little more complicated. And it gets a more complicated treatment. Different angles, different setups. And the day grows, the light changes. Suddenly, it's high noon. And speaking of movie magic, presto. Swiss steak, string beans, macaroni with cheese, soup, salad, dessert, tea, milk, and coffee. For 300 people, served piping hot on top of a mountain. Pardon me for 302 people. Here's Natalie Wood, the kind of fresh young face and macaroni-proof young figure that the movie industry is always seeking, and uh, who isn't. Hello, Natalie. Oh, hello, Gig. Please sit down. Thank you. How's the food? Best location food I ever ate. Well, I must say you certainly seem to thrive on it. Well, I was brought up on it. I've been eating lunch on the set since I was four years old. That's correct. Natalie's a movie veteran. Been in pictures since 1941, is that correct? That's right. She's played daughter and granddaughter to almost every top star in the business. Oh, but I can be a femme fatale, too. Why, in Rebel Without a Cause, I play a very bad girl. But a very pretty veteran. And if what Mr. Jack Warner tells me is correct, and I'm sure it is, we're going to be seeing a lot of you.
0: Thank you, Gig.
1: Thank you, Natalie Wood, and I hope you enjoy your lunch. The trouble is, you see, the sun doesn't stop for lunch. It moves right on into the afternoon, racing toward evening. Even at 2.45, shadows begin to form. When you're working in cinemascope and watercolor, the sun needs help. And shot by shot, the big scene of the day is put on film, a knife fight played against the backdrop of a city far below. Each line in the script girl's master book represents a new angle, another viewpoint, Perhaps a close-up of one of the boys. Perhaps a sudden glimpse of a flashing hand, a smile, a lunge. The scene is a challenge, a duel, a dance between two boys in rebellion against the world. The film must tell it all, and as the day marches on, the lines in the typewritten page slowly grow and multiply. 5.45, the same scene, 11 different angles photographed on 11 different strips of film, each carefully numbered, and now, Okay, boys, wrap them up. The day is done, put to bed, all through. For everybody, that is, but producer David Weisbart. 8.30 PM, back at the studio, he's still at it, with his film editor, Bill Ziegler. I reversed those two angles, Dave. I think they're much better. Good. Let's try it. You see, there's more to making a motion picture than shooting film. You have to make the film tell your story. What you saw today up at the planetarium doesn't really begin to tell the story of Rebel. That knife fight, for example, is a result, not a cause. The real cause of Rebel is here in what we call our key scene. I'd like to show it to you. No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? Because I am involved, and you're involved. Mom, a boy was killed tonight. I don't see how we we can get out of that by pretending it didn't happen. Now, look, look, Jim. You know know that you did wrong. That is the main thing. That's nothing. That's Hmm. nothing. You told me to always tell the truth. You can't turn that off just like that. But he's not saying that. He's saying don't volunteer. Just tell a little white lie, is that that what you want? You'll learn, you'll learn, Jim, when you're older. I don't think that I want to learn that way. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because we're moving. You're not turning me loose Well, that's news to me, just why are we moving? Oh, do I have to spell it out? You are not going to use me as an excuse again, Mom. Oh, you, every time you, you can't face yourself, you want to move and you say it's me, you say... That's not true! You say it's me? She, she says it's a neighborhood? You give me all kinds of phony excuses. I just want to do one thing right. In other words, this is partly a story about parents. It has to be. Good or bad, all young people have them. You are so right. Thank you very much, David Weisbart. And thank you, Bill Ziegler. Good night. Good night. Bill. Well, there you have a day in the life of production 821, otherwise known as rubble without a cause. I'll be back in a moment to tell you about next week's Behind the Cameras.
0: I haven't seen Rebel without a cause in years. I always uh, think of that as probably like the uh, first classic quote unquote movie that I ever saw, I guess. Um, It's from 1955. I remember watching that movie while I was eating a hamburger at a restaurant in San Francisco, California. Went out there on a vacation with my parents in 1995, and they had that movie playing on the TV, and I became. Totally obsessed with it, and I I urged my parents to, like, let us uh, stay there in that restaurant until the movie was uh, over. It was really because of Rebel Without a Cause that I got into a lot of other uh, classic films. But I I love the... That was was an old newsreel uh, hosted by Gig Young, uh, who won an Academy Award uh, for a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And uh, then, sadly... Uh, died by suicide a couple of years later. Um, a lot of people in that. I mean, James Dean, of course, uh, would die in a car accident uh, just a few months after that was shot, right before Rebel Without a Cause came out. It was his last film. Uh, Sal Mineo, uh who was also featured in that, died in a knife fight, I think. Am I right about that? Yeah, he died. Maybe I'm thinking about Alfalfa. I can't remember. He died. Natalie Wood was uh, drowned. Just uh, That movie was cursed. I don't believe in curses but if I did I I would point to Rebel Without a Cause right definitely Um, but yeah before that of course you had uh, Stephen King uh, speaking for the libraries of America that was the first time I ever saw uh, or was exposed to Stephen King was that old commercial him creeping up on uh, on a woman in the library in the stacks and scaring her Oh yeah. Before we go tonight, um, I want to take a toast to someone who died. I it just, you know, I, this show—I did not plan it this way. I promise, it's full of death. I apologize, uh, but you know, death taxes and uh, neighbors, right? I am going to take a little toast uh, with some uh, Cuddy Sark scotch to uh, Ann Hayes who uh, sadly passed away yesterday, Friday, August 12th, 2022, uh, from a uh, being in a terrible car accident. And as I understand, you know, it was her fault. She was speeding. Uh, the... the Press has been talking about how this was, uh, you know, just kind of an issue of someone um, struggling with mental health and uh, all that. Fortunately, nobody else was injured. I know she cr- uh, crashed into somebody's house, and uh, they were uh, taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. But Anne Heche, um suffered a traumatic head injury and, and was on life support for several days before she expired yesterday. Um, Anne Heche, uh you know, has not you know, been really in the public consciousness for a very long time. I don't know if uh, kids today would know who Anne Heche was, but she was definitely like all over the place when I was a kid. Not just because, not not because she was a big actress or because she was like a pinup model or anything like that. Uh, Anne Heche uh, was famous for being the girlfriend of Ellen DeGeneres uh, when Ellen DeGeneres uh, chose to uh, come out of the closet and, uh, you know, uh, tell the world that she was uh, a gay right that magazine cover right yep i'm gay and um, of course there was a very famous uh, episode of her sitcom at the time ellen uh, called the puppy episode with uh, laura dern guest starred where she uh, admitted she was gay it was a huge ratings bonanza right everybody if they didn't watch that show they talked about that show because it was such a big idea i mean this is how far we've come right um, you know back in like when was it 90 96 I think or 97 sometime around there you know for just a major network television star to uh come out of the closet on national television and uh still keep her career of course the show was canceled not long after that I know I know it's it's easy to be cynical and just say that Ellen did it for the ratings I don't know but um but her girlfriend at the time was Anne Heche and uh um Anne Heche was, uh, she had been in some stuff, but, uh, like nobody knew who she was until she started dating Ellen DeGeneres. And indeed there was a lot of cynical media attention about Anne Heche. Oh, she's just doing this for her career and all that. Um, and yeah, Anne Heche got, was in a lot of movies, um, around the time she was dating Ellen DeGeneres. And then when their relationship broke up, she just somehow went away, um, I I'm told that she's been in some stuff since then, but, um, but for about three years though, Anne Heche was like all over the place, you know? Um, I think most famously she was, um, she played the Janet Lee character in the 1998 Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho, the movie that he made remade Psycho shot for shot, which offended a lot of film buffs and bored a lot of film goers. Um, you know, Psycho, um, she played the Janet Lee role in that, so. But I'm gonna take a toast to uh, Anne Hae. Right. So raise your glass, and um, she's gone, but not forgotten, right? Yeah, one one thing that. Um, was riled up in me this week um, when I found out that Anne Heche had passed away is that she actually is probably a bigger influence on my life than I've ever given her credit for. Um, Not that I've always, like, you know, really cared about Anne Heche that much, but that whole moment in time in the mid to late nineties when Anne Heche and Ellen DeGeneres were like walking red carpets and they were on all the publicity magazines and everybody was talking about how gay they were together and all that. Um, you know, that, that was kind of a big moment for me when I was uh, growing up because it exposed a lot of prejudices in my community. Um, you know, before Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet, um, you know, homosexuality and and, and being gay was very, very, like, taboo to the point where it was not even talked about um, here in the South, where I grew up. Um, Nobody really talked about it, and if it was talked about, oh, it was a sin, and only um, terrible, evil people in San Francisco, California do it, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, you know, that was was the line on it. And then when... um, Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet and Anne Heche was her girlfriend. Uh, Suddenly everybody was talking about it. You would go to church on Wednesdays and Wednesday youth group. You know, they would rail against how, you know, evil Ellen DeGeneres is and to not watch the show. And the pastor would talk about it. And, you know, suddenly, like, I couldn't go to Disney World or watch the Disney Channel because Disney was, you know, owned ABC (laughs) It was just a whole thing, and it exposed all these prejudices, and I think led me eventually to the point where I just stopped going to the church and, and eventually stopped really even entertaining the idea of God as something that was uh, that I wanted to be a part of, right? It, it's, it's like if, if, if God is this and just doesn't allow people to live their own lives on His creation, I really don't want a part of that. You know, I, I don't. I don't understand why heaven would be any different. If I'm going to go to heaven, there's going to be all this other bigotry up there as well, because I'm going to be with all these people who claim to care about them, but not getting to. You know, the, the the passing of Anne hache this week made me think about something that I, I've been thinking about off and on ever since I had this critical moment of decision um, when I was probably a junior or senior in high school just to stop going to, um, you know, just to stop going to church uh, and give up the whole thing altogether. It was this thing that, like, am I – do I just not believe in God or am I just like irritated by the people who represent him, by, by his fans? Right. Am I just, you know, is God something that I should still think about as being a viable alternative is this idea that there is this, you know, monotheism that there's just this one thing up in heaven, this one entity up in heaven, right. That, um, controls everything and has a plan for everything Um, you know, should I, I mean, even if it's not that typical, you know, Southern Baptist way of thinking, um, that I, that I grew up with, should I still entertain the idea that there is a God up there that like has a divine plan for everything and just shut all the other noise out, right? All these like annoying people here on earth who tell me that I can't watch the Disney channel or, (laughs) um, you know, all these people here on earth that tell me that like, um, You know, I support murder if I support abortion and all that. Yeah, Um, I I don't know. I just it's it's an ongoing question that I have in my life. That's why I, you know, we have this tendency as human beings to label people, and um, I don't know if I'm an atheist and agnostic. I mean, those are all labels. My thing is is like I don't know. I like to keep all my options open. If anything else, so that when I die, um, I can have my bases covered, right? See, you know, like the the, the vision that I have of heaven is that, you know, you die and it's kind of like mission space at like Epcot Center. You go there and you can go in one line or you can go in the other line. And there's like two completely different experiences. I mean, why can't we have that? That sounds nice. Why can't we have a religion that just, you know, is like, you know, do what you want, think what you want. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Just be a good person. You know, that'll be nice. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne Heche made me think about all that this week. yeah but I just I haven't made up my mind yet about that and uh, that's uh, one of the reasons I do this show and uh, keep studying so uh, and I I don't expect to ever make up my mind I keep wanting to think about things and and question them and not not just be decisive just so I can get the decision out of out of my way and just go have a cigar right anything <laughs> thank you so much for stopping by the midnight citizen show once again you can find me at mikebooty.com slash the midnight citizen you can watch the live stream of the show over at youtube.com slash mikebooty you can see my show uh, that I'm doing right now live with a camera and looking at me and all that the ugly artwork on my wall but it's original and I'm selling it too. If you want, if you want to buy it, at six hundred dollars. Um, also, find me over at the Overnightscape Underground on Sug O N S U G dot You can listen to me on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And I look forward to being with you next week. Keep your eyes open.